I feel like I am um, a trophy of God's grace. I am um, a grateful believer who struggles with alcohol, and I was in treatment at Stanislaus Recovery Center in 2006, and one of the counselors led me to Christ. Wow. Um, God's grace has been amazing in my life. All of my relationships have been reconciled. Um, I have um, my husband and I remarried. Um, my relationship with with friends and family that were um, ruined are, are have been reconciled. Um, I have a great job. I just um, just met my biological father, which I would not have had the strength to do. I wasn't ready to do that. Um, God's grace has been amazing in my life. Um, I think the most significant way is, um, is just by being an example. Um, I don't think I have any magic powers or anything like that, but I, I facilitate small groups, I facilitate a step study. Um, I'm on the leadership team um, for Celebrate Recovery, Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, but to give you hope in a future. you're visiting with us, we always have a little testimony of somebody whose life's being changed by the power of Christ, and I want to welcome you here. I want to welcome those of you that are over in the venue. Thank you, uh, Jared and John, for leading worship over there. Just a, a great um, just a great group of, of people over there. If you ever get here and this place is a little crowded like it is now, uh, you can make your way over to the venue, which is right through here, and there's live music over there, and um, we have the venue at the 845 hour and this hour, and those of you that are listening online, we have lots of people who listen online. I want to welcome those of you that are listening, and um, all of you can take one of these little, uh, little things right like this, little shell, pull that out. And uh, all the verses that I'm going to talk about will be in here. They'll be on the jumbotrons, and this will help you kind of track a little bit of where, where I think the Lord is, is, is going is to take us. But once again, I want to welcome you You're here to Big Valley Grace. And if you're visiting, we are in a, a series here called Shining Like the Stars, where we're going through the, the book of Philippians together. Last week, I had the, the privilege of speaking up at Hume Lake, which is the largest Christian camp, I think, in America to their annual uh, pastor's retreat. There were hundreds of pastors there from all over and, and their, their spouses. And um, man, there were Presbyterian churches there, Methodist churches, Calvary Chapel churches, Baptist churches, Assembly of God churches, all different kinds of churches with all different kinds of backgrounds and tra traditions. But we all had one thing in common. And that is, you know, we all preach Jesus Christ crucified and risen again. And it was an incredible uh, time of fellowship. Um, it was an honor to speak with them. And I know many of you were, were praying, and I want you to know it worked. 
Uh, just met some great people. My wife and I had, a, had a, just a fantastic time while we were there. But right before I went up, I went and got my, um, I went and visited a friend. I got to be careful because this goes out, out on the radio. I was visiting a friend of mine. He's 70 plus years of age and he doesn't know the Lord. And he's known my family uh, before I was born. He's, he's known me my entire life. He's watched me grow up. He knew me before I came to Christ and, and uh, would come out to all the sporting events when I was going down here to Grayson Davis and all that. He's known me since I, I've given my life to Jesus Christ and he's seen how the Lord has transformed uh, my life. Um, uh, he's asked me and I've had the privilege of uh, preaching at his uh, brother's funeral and also another sibling he's asked me to do uh, their funeral. He's asked me to go visit his 90-year-old uh, mother who's in a rest home, and I've done that many times. And as I said, he doesn't know the Lord. And so while I was talking with him one day. He said, hey, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I'm going to be going up to this Christian camp with my wife. He said, really? He goes, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going I'm to speak to uh, hundreds of pastors from all over the state and you know, the country and all that. He goes, really? He goes, well, what are you going to say? And I said, well, I, I don't know. What, what should I say? If you had the chance to stand up in front of this group of preachers and their wives, what would you want me to say to them? And without hesitation, he looked at me and he said, I'd tell them to get their acts together. <laughs> there was a time when the preachers were the most respected people in town. Not anymore. And then he rewound the, the, the tape all the way back to the 80s. And he began to talk to, uh, to me about Jim Baker. And how he was on TV telling people about God and everybody was sending him his money and all that. And then we find out he was having sex with his secretary, you know, Jessica Hahn. And then he was taking all the money that was coming in and paying her off. And then there was Jimmy Swagger. You know, he got on TV and he pointed his bony finger at everybody and said what a loser Jim Baker was. And then we found out he had a bunch of naked dancing ladies in a hotel room. And he literally just went down the line. And he got to modern day and he started talking about Ted Haggard. And then he began to talk about some of the people in our own city. And it just blew me away. Here's a guy who doesn't know the Lord. But he could rattle off all of these guys that had fallen. He knew what they did. Then he turned around and looked at me and he said, Ricky, and you're not allowed to ever call me that, okay? My mother could call me that, and this guy could call me that, okay? Because he's just watching me my whole life. He said, Ricky, I didn't want to ever read about you in the paper. And I knew what he was talking about. You know, I thought that was really interesting. And by the way, that became the theme of the whole camp. I, I told all these pastors that. I said, hey, I got a friend. He's 70 years old, doesn't know the Lord. And here's his message to you. Get your acts together. And that became my theme of all of my messages to these men and, and, and women. And I, 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 I thought it was interesting because it's basically the same thing Paul said in chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul said, only one thing concerns me. Be sure that you live in a way that brings honor to the good news of Christ. 
He says basically the same thing in chapter two. He says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright stars. One version says, shining like the stars in the universe in a world full of crooked and perverse people. And as I told you over the last few weeks, I think Paul went outside one night and it was dark and he looked up and he saw all the stars up in the sky and how they, they pierced the darkness. And he went, that's it. That's how a follower of Christ is to live. In a world that's dark and crummy, we're to be like those bright stars. We're to be bright lights. Jesus said something similar in Matthew chapter five. He said, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. Beloved, the world's a dark place and when you shine, people notice. It brings glory to the, to the Father and when you don't shine, people notice like my 70-year-old unsaved friend. He notices, people notice. Now in our text today, Paul's got a, a message for us as a, as a church family. He's gonna share with us how we as a church can get along better, how we can have greater unity because the better we get along as a church family, the greater our church will shine for God. The greater the unity amongst us as a church family, the greater our light is going to shine, the greater our impact will be in our community here in Modesto. Now, now, let me kind of lay this out for you a little bit. We have uh, well over 5,000 people who consider Big Valley Grace uh, their home. Okay, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people with different personalities. That's a lot of people with different ideas. That's a lot of people with different family backgrounds. That's a lot of people with different abilities. That's a lot of people with different spiritual gifts. That's a lot of people with different life experiences, educational experiences, business experiences. That's a lot of people with different church backgrounds, different church traditions that we've, we've come from. That's a lot of people with different political views. And when you put us all together in a, a church family called Big Valley Grace, there's the possibility the good possibility that there's gonna be some tension among us. And whenever there's tension, there's, there's potential for there to be disunity. There's potential for there to be uh, you know, disharmony uh, 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 among us. And so Paul in our text is gonna share with us how we can better get along with each other so that we can continue to be a bright light in our community, and Big Valley Grace is certainly that. Now, I also think that there's a, a broader application in, in our text. I want you to think about your own family for a moment, your own biological family. Is everybody alike? No, not everybody's alike, are they? There's all kinds of different people in your family, especially when you got, got married, right? Man, all of a sudden you said, I do, and, and now these two families came together with different backgrounds and, and different traditions and, and different political views and different, name it. I mean, just all kinds of different things came together. And when you have differences, there's a, a, a potential that there's gonna be tension within your family. And when there's tension, there's great potential that... Um, there's gonna be disunity, disharmony. 
There's potential that your light will be snuffed out, if you will, as, a, as just a, a, a family. And so Paul is going to lay out a few things in our text that I think will help us all better get along, whether it's us as a church family, could be your own biological family, it could be the friends that you have with people, it could be the people in your small group. It might be the people who attend another church here in our community. These are going to be great principles that I think we can all learn from. So let's just read the first three verses of chapter 2, okay? The first three verses of Philippians chapter 2. The Holy Spirit fills our brother Paul, and then Paul pins these words. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, being one in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considers others better than yourselves. Paul says, be like-minded. Paul says, have the same love. Paul says, be one in the spirit, be one in purpose. And beloved, these are, are expressions of, of unity, aren't they? These are the qualities that you have to have if you're gonna get along with your fellow family members here at Big Valley Grace or, or really even with the people in your biological families, you know, your spouse or your parents, your kids, you know, your in-laws or whoever they might be. These are the qualities that, that make a church family shine for God in, in greater ways in this dark and crummy culture that we live in. So how do you do it? How can you live out these qualities in your life or in your family's lives or your friendships or, 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 whatever, or whatever? I'm gonna give you a couple thoughts. This isn't a comprehensive list, but, but I think God will use them in your life. Number one, you got to deal with selfishness. Look at verse 3. God says to the apostle Paul, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Beloved, nothing messes up relationships, whether it's, you know, here in the church, in your small group, in your friendships, in your, in your family, like, like selfishness, nothing. And it's not a coincidence that Paul mentions it first because really, if you think about it, it's the root of every other, every other sin. Think back to the very first sin ever committed. It was all about selfishness. Adam and Eve put their will, their desires, self in front of God's will, God's desire. What they wanted trumped what God wanted. And so they ate, you know, the, 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 the fruit. Beloved, selfishness was the reason Satan fell. He placed his will, his desires above God's. Didn't matter what God said, what mattered to Satan was self, what he wanted. Selfishness is always at the core of every sin we commit, and it's also at the core of every argument that we have, whether it's an argument between a brother and a sister in here, 
an argument between a brother or a sister in your small group, a brother and a sister between you know, somebody at another church, uh, uh, an arguments uh, between family members, whatever it might be. Listen to what our brother James said in James chapter four. He said, what is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Beloved, the, the reason you and your, your spouse argue, the reason why you and your kids argue, the reason why some of you in this room argue, the reason why some of you in your small group argue, the reason why you, know, you might argue with somebody in, a, in another church, the reason why you argue is conflicting desires. When your wants conflict with somebody else's wants, buckle your seatbelt because the sparks are going to fly. There's going to be trouble. There are going to be arguments. Why? Because when you and your spouse or your kids or a fellow church member argue, you have these conflicting desires. It always leads to one or both of you having frustrated feelings. And when your feelings get frustrated, it leads to arguments. So here you are, and you've got, you know, these wants, these desires, and here's your spouse. They've got their wants and desires. Ooh, boy, there's going to be trouble. Here you are as a member of this family of God, and you've got your thoughts and your ideas. And here's somebody else, a part of your church family, who's got thoughts and ideas. Oh, boy. The word of God is clear. What is causing the quarrels and the fights among you? It's conflicting desires. So you have to learn to deal with you and your wants. In fact, you show me somebody that really only cares about them and what they think, and, and I'll show you a person that's just hard to get along with. And we all know people like that, don't we? You get together with them, and what do they talk about the entire time? Self, self, all they care about is them. They tell you about all their troubles and all their stuff and what's happening in their life and blah, 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 blah. They're fun people to be around, aren't they? Someone who cares about them. Selfishness causes disunity. It causes fights. It causes all kinds of, of crummy things. And selfish people don't shine very brightly for God, do they? Number two, you got to deal with your pride. Paul goes on to say in verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Beloved, selfishness and pride go hand in hand, don't they? I love the way the good news version says it. It says, do not do anything from selfish ambition or from a cheap desire to boast. And I just really liked that. Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived, said this. He said, pride only leads to arguments. That, that's the inspired word of God. 
The only thing pride's going to do, it's going to lead to arguments. You know, I want to be number one. I want to have the power. I want to be popular. I want to be important. You know, I want people around me to think I got it all together kind of a thing. It's the attitude of me first, and this attitude always leads to arguments with people. Always. And it snuffs out your light. Have you ever been in an argument where you knew you were wrong, but you wouldn't admit it? I mean, you were busted, cold busted. You knew you were wrong. And you just dug in. And, and, and you're embarrassed. You, you know you're wrong. But you just won't give it up. Why? Pride. Pride. That's why it's so hard to admit when we're wrong. Listen, the next time you're, you're in an argument with somebody, somebody here at church, somebody in your small group, your spouse, whoever, stop and ask yourself, is this worth it? Is what we're arguing about right now worth it? I mean, there are people right now who are dying apart from Christ. They will spend their eternity in a place that was made for the devil and the demons. There are people who woke up in our own city underneath the 7th Street Bridge who don't have any food to eat. Is what you're arguing about really worth it? It's amazing some of the things that we argue about between a husband and a wife or two brothers, sisters in the Lord. That's unbelievable. Things that just don't even really matter in the grand scheme of things. Look, teenagers, is it possible? Radical thought. Is it, is it possible that your parents might be right? Man, whoa, whoa, I, I think the pastor's on something. I mean, is it, you know, they got a few more miles on their odometer of life than you do. And I know what your parents are saying, preach it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, half the crowd is going to get up and walk out right now. Because let me tell you something. Hey, 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 parents, is it possible that maybe your teenager is right? Oh, he's gone off the deep end. Oh, I don't know. I, you know, I knew this church. I knew there was something weird about it. Because there's just absolutely no way that my teenager could possibly be right. Is it possible? You think that they might have some bit of wisdom to add to whatever it is you're talking about? You think God might show up through them? Listen, pride causes quarrels and disunity, snuffs out your, your light. So what's the antidote to selfishness and pride? Well, the antidote is humility. Once again, Paul said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. And let me just tell you what that just did to your flesh. Ooh, that just grated against it. Your flesh doesn't like that sentence. Consider others better than ourselves? Wow. Boy, our flesh, our human nature, the old nature, just wow. No way. He goes on and he says, don't look out only for your own interests, 
but take an interest in others too. Beloved, this is a radical concept, especially in our culture. Paul says that you're to treat people almost better than you're to treat yourself. Here in America, that's just the exact opposite of how you know, we're, we're taught to think. In America, we've elevated selfishness to an art form. It's a, it's a character quality that we strive for, man, how to take care of ourselves, how to make sure we get the stuff and we have the stuff. And I want to have more stuff than that guy's got stuff. I want to make sure I'm taken care of. Here's the bottom line. You're either going to be self-centered or you're going to be other-centered. And the choice you make determines whether or not you're going to get along with people. The, the choice you make determines whether there's going to be unity and harmony in your relationships or whether there's going to be disunity and strife in your relationships. And you get to make the call. You're either going to be self-centered or you're going to be other-centered. And both of them come with a consequence. One brings harmony, unity. One brings strife and disunity. James goes on to say in chapter four, God opposes the proud. Did you know that it's possible to have given your life to Christ, that the Holy Spirit now indwells you, that your sins have been forgiven, that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, that you would take your last breath here on planet Earth and your next breath would be with the Lord Jesus Christ forever in heaven. And yet, while you're down here on planet Earth, God is in opposition to you. You see, down here on planet Earth, you can know Christ. You can be a follower of Christ. You can be a Christian and yet still be selfish and full of pride. And the Bible says that God is in opposition to you. But he gives grace to the humble. And grace is God's power to change. He goes on and says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So here's the question of the morning. What would you like to change about yourself? Just think about it. Whether you're here or you're over in the venue or you're listening on the internet, what is it? What is it about your life that you go, man, you know what, this doesn't look like Christ. This is an area of my life that I know I've got to change. It just, it, 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 it just doesn't make me shine very brightly. What is that thing that you know is crummy? Your language? Is it some of the stuff that you're watching? What is that thing? And I, I don't know what it is. I know what it is in my life. I don't know what it is in your life. What would you like to change about your relationships? What is it about, uh, you know, you, you look at a husband and a wife or, you know, a family and their children. Um, 
It could be somebody, a relationship within your small group or whatever. What is it about the relationships that you have that you go, man, I, I need to change this? What would you like to change about your marriage? What would you like to change about your family? Because whatever you want to change, you need God's grace to do it. You need God's power to pull it off. You can't make lasting change on your own. You need God's power to pull it off. And there's only one way you get God's power. There's only one way you get God's grace to make whatever those changes are. And that's by humbling yourself. God doesn't give his power out if you've got the attitude that I don't need God's help. And you can be a Christian and have that attitude. I don't need anybody's help. I don't, I don't, want, I don't need God. I can, I can pull this thing off on my own. And God says, well, then go for it. But just know that you've got that attitude. You're in opposition to God. He opposes you. And that ought to be a sobering thought. That God would be in opposition to you. Listen, when you look at, I don't know, whatever it is in your life, whatever that thing is or the relationships you have, and you go to God and say, God, I need your help. This thing in my life, it, it, it just, it, it doesn't honor you. I need some help. God, help me. God, I'm really struggling in my relationship with my wife or my, you know, my kids or, or somebody in my small group or somebody here at church or somebody in another church. God, help me. God, help me. Wow, that's when God shows up and does something amazing in your own personal life. Now, James gives us four specific action steps that you need to take in order to stop the fighting that you're having with your spouse, you know, somebody in your church family or, or, or some friend that you have. These are things that will bring unity and harmony to your relationships. And James gets very practical here, okay? These are things that I guarantee you will diffuse a conflict. Whether that conflict is between you and your spouse, you and your kids, you and somebody in your church family here. Action step number one is surrender your life over to God. James says in verse seven, submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. One version says, give yourselves completely to God. Beloved, this is where it all begins. If you wanna cut down on the amount of arguing in your marriage or your family or your church family or somebody at work or wherever, this is the first step. You gotta surrender your life over to God. And sometimes you have to do that multiple times in a day. Let God be God in your life. Give him control, put him in charge, yield yourself to him. This is the starting point. Quit trying to run your own life. Listen to me, the reason there's conflict between you and your spouse or whoever is because there's conflict within you. You're not getting along with people because there's a civil war going on within your own soul. This is the real issue. The real conflict is inside of you. You've, you've invited God into your life but you're still trying to run your life. And God says that's not the way it works. And so within you, there's conflict. 
And when there's conflict in here, boy, it's just going to come out here. So the starting point to diffusing arguments is to experience peace inside of you. That way there can be peace outside of you. The reason why there's so little peace in some of your lives is because there's no peace in here. Here's how it works. If you're in charge of your life, Anytime somebody comes along with a different thought or opinion than yours, you get uptight. You get irritable. You get upset. You, you, you want things to go just the way you want them to go. And when they don't go that way, you, you get all bowed out of shape about it. But when God's in charge of your life, you don't, you're just not as irritable. Paul said this in Colossians chapter 3. He said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Beloved, when your life is full of the peace of Christ, the chances are far greater that you're going to be at peace with other people. This means you learn to say, thy will be done instead of my will be done. When you can say, Lord, whatever you want, that's what I want, that's when the peace process begins in your life. When you just simply say, God, I'm surrendering myself to you. The second action step is this. You gotta keep alert to the plans of the enemy. James goes on to say, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So it begins when you surrender your life over to God, but then you have to quickly get down here and say, you know what, I've got an enemy. And he has his PhD in screwing up people's lives. And you have to be alert to how he works. You gotta be aware of the enemy. You gotta be wise to Satan and his influences in your life, in your marriage, in your small group, and in us as a church family. The word resist is a war term. It means to be prepared, to stand against. The, the devil wants to destroy the unity and the harmony in our church and in your marriage and in your family or whatever. And the way he goes about it is by causing arguments and conflict. Satan loves to cause confusion. He loves to cause stress and hurt feelings and disappointment. He loves to cause anger and chaos, which is why it's so important to keep alert to what he's doing. Paul gives us a great bit of information. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says this. He said, follower of Christ, you need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. He's got a lot of strategies. If we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies... But our fight is against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Beloved, listen to me. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your kid is not the enemy. Your parents are not the enemy. Your parents aren't the enemy. Your boss isn't the enemy. I'm not your enemy. Now you've got an enemy, but none of them are it. And what the enemy does, though, is he, he wants to somehow make you think it's your wife. 
He wants you to think it's your husband. He wants you to think the enemy is your parents. He wants you to think that the enemy is your children. The enemy is the, the, the pastor of the church, you know. And you need to be aware of the fact that none of them are the enemy. Our enemy is not a flesh and blood enemy. But too often, you know, we wake up and we eat our post-hosties and, you know, we run out the door and we go to work and we're not even thinking about the fact that there was an enemy who was up all night long planning, strategizing, scheming on how to mess up your life. And it's one thing to say, God, I surrender my life to you this morning. Good thing to do. I think that's where it all begins. But then you need to understand that that there's an enemy. There's an enemy. Listen, Christian, don't let him outwit you. Too many Christians allow the enemy to outwit them. And so I watch families fall apart left and right. It's unbelievable how the enemy is outwitting us because we're not aware of what he's up to. Let me give you a little thought on some of his tactics. Uh, I want you to know that the enemy, the devil, doesn't stand around, you know, with a pitchfork in his hand, in a little red suit, you know, drinking a Budweiser in a hot place. He plays on your pride. He tells you what you want to hear. He whispers in your ear little thoughts, suggestions, ideas. When you're in the middle of an argument, he starts whispering in your ear things like this. You know, hey, you don't have to take that kind of stuff. Retaliate. You're the man of this home. What does she think she is? Don't put up with that kind of stuff. Show her who's a boss. She's got to be aware of what's happening. Remember, it's selfishness and pride that messes things up. But it's humility that brings the power that we need. The grace that we need. You need to say, Satan, I know that's you and I refuse to be outwitted by you. Action step number three. You have to do everything you can to continue to deepen your relationship with God. James goes on and says, come near to God and he will come near to you. And how do you deepen your relationship, you know, to God? How do you grow closer to God? Well, somehow, you know, this has to be a part of it, right? Spending time in the Word of God, enjoying the Word of God, reading about Christ and His life, the things that are important to God, the things that God wants us to stay away from, the things that God wants us to do with our lives. Certainly prayers, having a morning prayer time, and an afternoon prayer time, an evening prayer time, where you're just talking with the Lord giving, serving, getting involved in a small group, maybe getting involved in men's ministries, women's ministries, by making a commitment to being a part of the fellowship that goes on here on the weekends. All these kinds of things help you grow closer to God. And I've made an amazing discovery that the more time I spend alone with God, this is unbelievable, the better I get along with my wife. It's weird. The more time I spend in God's Word, 
more time I spend in prayer, more time I spend fellowshipping in my small group, more time I spend fellowshipping with God's people, more time I spend listening to good God-honoring music, more time I'm involved in that. It's weird how I just get along with my wife better. In fact, I get along with everybody better. Look, when the argument level rises in any relationship that you have, it means that somebody isn't spending time with the Lord. And maybe it's you. Maybe you're the one. And, and just recognize that, wow, it's pride, it's it's. Self, it's not me, it's her, it's her, right? Maybe it's you. Maybe. Isaiah 26 says, He, Jesus, will keep in perfect peace all who trust in him, whose thoughts turn often to the Lord. And I think the key word there is often. Coming here Sunday morning for an hour and a half is not often. Just because you're here for this hour and a half doesn't mean it's often. What is there, 165, 160, whatever it is, hours in a week? And if this is it, that ain't often. But the Bible says when you come to him often, when you surrender your life to him, and sometimes, like I said, you got to do that multiple times in a day. When you're coming to him often, when you're deepening your relationship with him often, Wow, he'll keep you in perfect peace. Peace. Action step number, number four is you have to be quick, super quick, to ask for forgiveness. James goes on to say in verse 8, Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. One version says, Wash your hands, purify your hearts. Let there be tears for the wrongs that you have done. Our hands represent our conduct and our hearts represent our attitude. So in other words, James is saying, Clean your act up. It's the same thing my 70-year-old friend said. When something crummy goes down between you or your, and your spouse or between you and somebody in your small group or between you and somebody here at the church or whatever, don't minimize what's happened. Take it seriously. Be sorry for what you've done. Ask for forgiveness. Look, when you know you've hurt somebody or you did something crummy, when you go and say, hey, listen, I, I, I'm just so sorry. Man, I think my flesh got the better of me and I didn't treat you the way I should have treated you. And Would you forgive me? Please, I'm so sorry. Would that take me, like 10 seconds? And in 10 seconds, it's unbelievable what can happen in any relationship you have when you just humble yourself and say, wow, I, I just fumbled that one, didn't I? Wow, I'm sorry. And it could be, guys, that maybe your wife is 95% wrong. She's in the wrong, 95%. And 5% of it's you. Then you just deal with your 
Own your 5%. Man, honey, I'm so sorry, man. I was really crummy what I did or what I said. Please forgive me. And then just let God do whatever God wants to do in her life. You don't say, man, I'm really sorry for my 5% and your 95%. Go ahead. You owe me now. That's, you know what that is? That's self. That's selfishness. Hey, your turn now. I mean, I'm special. You better. You better now, you know, ask. And all that does is cause arguments again. You just worry about whatever percentage you were in the wrong. And you allow God through the Holy Spirit to deal with your spouse or whoever, whoever it might be. It could be somebody here in the church. <laughs> church this size, you know, there's somebody sitting over there that hasn't talked to somebody sitting over here in a week or a month or a year. Something happened and both of you dug in. That just, that just doesn't honor God. It just makes your light a little dimmer. All it takes is for one of you to go, man, I, I'm just really sorry. We have blown a year of our life. Maybe there's somebody at another church, and they hurt you. Ah, you hurt them. Wow. You got to submit your life to God. You, you got to surrender your life to him. You got to be very cognitive of the fact that we got an enemy you got to deepen your relationship with God. And then as we walk around down here on planet Earth, we got to be really quick to ask for forgiveness. Because when we don't, well, all that does is just goof, you know, goof things up. So for unity to thrive, for your relationships to thrive, you got to deal with selfishness and pride. And you do that through humility. Now, I want you to go back to Philippians, our text. And I want to look at verses 5 through 11 just quickly because it... it it might be one of the most profound little sections in, in, in Scripture. Paul says, here's the deal. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. <laughs> Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. That's not a big self-esteem booster, is it, human? He made himself nothing. He made himself one of us. Nothing. Here you've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this incredible Loving unity, incredible, the, the, the relationship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have. Perfect unity, perfect love. They don't need you or me. God didn't say, man, I got to get countrymen into the kingdom, you know, because, you know, he'll, he'll complete us. He didn't, they, they didn't need us. But I don't know how the conversation went down, but here, it had to go something like this. Sin had entered the world. 
Sin had stained our lives. Sin had broken the, the fellowship that we had between God and us. And there wasn't anything we could do about it. We were doomed. We were dead men and women walking. And somehow in this beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Father says to the Son, Son, I want you to go and make yourself nothing. I want you to become one of them. You're going to leave the glories of heaven where the angels sing our praises and you're going to go down there to that cruddy place <laughs> and you're going to allow people to beat you to a pulp and spit in your face and mock you. You're going to allow people to take a, a, a thorny bush that we created and they're going to weave it into a crown and they're going to cram it on your head and blood's going to gush down your face. And then there are going to be some Roman soldiers who we created while they were in their mother's womb. We've kept their heart beating. And we're going to allow them to hammer nails into your hands and to your feet. And there you're going to hang on a cross, embarrassed and shamed in front of the whole world. Because they have a need that only you can satisfy. He made himself in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus Christ went through all of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, the greatest example of humility is Jesus Christ. That God would put our need ahead of his own. And God says to his followers, that's the attitude you're to have. Hey, hey, husbands, you're to have that attitude as it relates to your spouse. Your spouse has all kinds of needs. I know you've got needs, but your spouse has needs. And you're to have the same attitude that Christ had. He gave up everything to meet your need. Ladies, your husband has needs. And the Bible says that you are to have the same attitude that Christ had. He gave it all up. He gave up everything that he might come and meet your need. And you're to do that for your husband. Listen, what God is calling us to do here is absolutely impossible. 
God is calling us to have an attitude, the same attitude that Christ had, and it's impossible for us to pull off. We don't have the power, we don't have the strength to pull it off. There's only one way we can do that, and that is by allowing Christ to work through us. Only way we can pull it off. When you surrender your life over to God and you understand that you've got an enemy and you're deepening your walk with God, when you're allowing the peace of Christ to fill your life, wow. Let me give you a pretty heavy thought here, just, just for a second. If Jesus Christ is living and breathing within me, if Jesus Christ has filled my life, if the peace of Christ has filled my life, and Jesus Christ is living and, and breathing within my wife's life, if Jesus Christ reigns supreme in her life, there's no way we can argue. No way. You know why? Because Christ will not argue with Christ. Christ is not going to have an argument with Christ. Jesus isn't going to argue with himself. But when one has allowed whatever it is, the world, I don't know how it goes, Satan to deceive them and they get filled with pride and selfishness, now you can have all kinds of arguments. But when you, as a, a family member of Jesus Christ, are filled with Christ, and you meet up with another family member who's filled with Christ, <laughs> Christ isn't going to argue with Christ. So when an argument breaks out, somebody, and in some cases it's both people, have allowed the enemy to outwit them and it just snuffs their light out. Snuffs their light out. Whenever somebody comes into my office, or forget that, when, when something's going down in my own home, and there's tension and conflict, and I, I know what that means. Someone's not filled with the presence of Christ. Oh, they know the Lord, but they're filled with something else, pride, selfishness, whatever. And 99.926% of the time, it's me. And that's just the way I know me. And, I, and there's stuff, <laughs> and I do this for a minute, and I dig in, and my pride's there, and I'm all selfish. <laughs> then at some moment, the Holy Spirit begins to do its work. Oh, God, I surrender my life back over to you. I let the devil outwit me, man. And I go to my wife and say, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't treat you with honor and respect the way I should have. I got all goofed up, full of my pride. And it, boom, just like that, just boom. 
It's instantaneous. However, thing, there's harmony again. Because when Christ fills two people, there's harmony. There's harmony. Close your eyes just for one second. Just real quick. Over in the venue, just close your eyes. And I don't want you to pray right this moment. I just want to get you alone. I know you're sitting next to your friends or your family members or, you know, somebody. And I just want you to be alone for a moment. And God knows all about us. He knows all about our pride and our selfishness. And maybe you might just say, God, would you let me in on the pride in my life? Would you let me in on some of those selfish things in my life? Let him, let, him, let him reveal them to you. When he reveals them to you, you got a choice to make. You can dig in or you can humble yourself. Some of you need to maybe have a great conversation with your spouse today. Maybe you need to have a conversation with your parents, your kids. Maybe there's a church member here that you just, you you need to call them today. It's gone on too long. Maybe there's a church member at another church. The rift got so bad, you know, they went to another church. Or maybe you came from another church and you just need to call them and say, hey, I heard from the Lord today. Forgive me. So that your light could shine brighter here, their light could shine brighter wherever they're at. Maybe you're here and you just need someone to pray for you. Maybe you as a couple need to have one of our elders, one of our pastors pray for you in the altar room. And we have an altar room over in the venue and here. And trust me, just because we're spiritual leaders, we we deal with our pride we deal with selfishness. We, we, we get it. We've been there. And we'd love to pray with you. Maybe, the, maybe you need to think about coming down here on Tuesday night where there's 500 people coming to celebrate recovery. People who are finding deliverance in Christ. People are dealing with their selfishness and their pride and it's a chance to come and sing to God's glory and meet with guys and gals and and say, God, I want you to be number one in my life. I need to deal with these things in my life. I don't want Satan to outwit me anymore in some of these areas of my life. That might be a good plan for some of you.